Intruder alert, intruder alert. Welcome aboard, Captain. Fighter pilots needed in Sector Wars. Play Astro Blaster. Are you trying to increase the power? Thank you, friends, for joining us for another episode, well, the last episode, of Season 2 of the Diary of an Arcade Employee Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and I appreciate all of your support over these last 12 weeks, downloading and commenting on each new show, and I certainly hope you've enjoyed the games we've covered so far. For what it's worth, while the next podcast I focus on is the Saturday Frights one, you shouldn't be too surprised to find a bonus episode for this show sneaking in now and again, something akin to the one-up episodes we used to do. Now then, judging by your comments on Facebook and by email, no one was taken by surprise that the subject of this episode is the 1982 classic platformer by Gottlieb. We are, of course, going to be discussing Qbert. Qbert was an arcade game that I did first experience at the showbiz pizza of my youth. The odd thing was that while located in what I've described as the showcase row of the arcade, that area off to the left that featured the latest and most popular games, with multiple cabinets back to back in a row of four titles, there was only one Qbert arcade cabinet, and it was off in a corner next to a pony wall leading down to the second level where the older games were kept. I really am not sure why the arcade only had the one Qbert, but I can add that it didn't seem to get much play either, which is bizarre as I know the game was a big hit for Gottlieb, but at least from what I could tell when visiting on Saturday afternoons, the players in my neck of the woods weren't that interested. Perhaps it was because Qbert is not exactly the easiest of games to play. I guess that is the general reaction to isometric titles like Zaxxon, also released in 82, or Congo Bongo the following year. I can tell you that my first game of Qbert was short and not sweet, and I actually jumped a little at the knocker that was engaged within the cabinet when our beloved hose nose falls to his doom. But the extremely colorful and cartoon-like graphics had me pumping another token into the game as soon as I lost my first one, and then again after my second, and so on. I liked it quite a bit, and the handful of times that my grandmother was able to join us on our Saturday afternoon trips, she played the game too and became quite the fan. I've mentioned before, my grandfather wasn't too big on video games. Actually, he couldn't bear the amount of noise from the delighted kids or the cacophony of the video games themselves at Showbiz Pizza, so he chose to stay home and watch a baseball or football game. Unlike some of the other titles we've talked about on this show, Qbert was one that would pop up in the lobby of the local Walmart or the Food for Less grocery store. So I was afforded opportunities to play it a bit more than some other favorites at Showbiz Pizza. Can I say I ever became extremely good at it? Not really, but at the very least I could make it a few rounds in level 2. Of course, thanks to the likes of Starcade, I frequently saw the Qbert game in action, as well as seeing it featured in the pages of Electronic Fun with computers and games and video gaming and computer gaming magazines. The popularity of Qbert became a mania, and it was in full swing when the character was featured in the Saturday Morning, Saturday Supercade video game themed cartoon anthology series on CBS that began on September 17th of 83 and lasted until December 1st of 84. And Qbert, 
I made mention of the cartoon-like quality of the characters in the game. I believe that is why, back in the day, there was just so much merchandise featuring Qbert. Perhaps not as overwhelming as the memorabilia produced for Pac-Man, but you had Qbert colorform sets, stickers, shrinky dinks, plush dolls, a board game, a Play-Doh set, wind-up toys, and PVC figures, and of course, home ports of the arcade game to name a few. I had some of those items I just mentioned, and I'm happy to say that I still own the Parker Brothers board game. And for what it might be worth, it was a Christmas Eve tradition that my grandmother and I play both Upwards and the Qbert board game until it was time to go to bed. Now then, I talked a bit about Gottlieb on the last episode of the podcast, the show focusing on Crawl. Just a quick recap though. The company was founded in 1927 by David Gottlieb. It achieved its first real success with 1931's Baffle Ball, a purely mechanical pinball table that offered players up to 10 balls for one cent, or up to five cents depending on what the operator needed, launching the balls up into the pin-covered playfield. The balls would then bounce off of the mini pins, and with luck, they would end up landing in the high-scoring metal cups, letting you win the game. Naturally, it was up to the players to keep the scores. The initial Baffle Ball unit, from reading online, sold for a whopping $17.50. And with an extra $2.50, you could buy a metal stand for it to rest on. Gottlieb would go on, of course, to be best known for their long line of pinball tables, but they also produced such classic arcade titles as Reactor, Mad Planets, and Crawl. Qbert was co-created thanks to Warren Davis, Jeff Lee, and David Teal, the last two we talked about in that Kroll episode. As I've read online, Qbert came about when Davis was looking for a project of his very own to tackle. It appears he was hired to help on 1981's Video Man, which would also be known as Protector, Guardian, and then eventually as Argus. And while at the very least a prototype was manufactured, it just didn't do too well in testing and was shelved. As Warren Davis told CoinOp.org, quote, I was new to Gottlieb in 1982 and had learned the ropes by helping one of our programmers with his game. I was looking for a game of my own to do when I saw that another programmer, Ken Yabumato, who would later do Mad Planets, had filled a screen with hexagons that consisted of three differently colored diamonds. If you chose the colors right, each hexagon seemed to be a three-dimensional cube. Khan had filled the screen to its edges with this pattern, but for some reason, when I looked at it, I envisioned a lot of the hexagons removed so it looked like a pyramid of cubes floating in space. Then I thought of balls bouncing down the pyramid. This was really a thought of convenience, since every time a ball landed, it had two choices of which way to bounce. Two choices means one bit, and that meant in one bite, I could determine a ball's path. It was a purely scientific endeavor, since I wanted to learn to program randomness and gravity. It was a nice exercise and nothing more. End quote. As always, I will be sure to include a link in the podcast post on the Pop Culture Retrorama page. It's certainly a fascinating read. To Davis's surprise, however, as he kept working on this exercise, with the balls dropping on a pyramid of cubes, his fellow employees commented on how visually interesting it all was. It was Jeff Lee who created the initial characters that bore a resemblance to those we'd come to love in Qbert. These were initially designed for another game idea of Lee's, and Davis asked if he could use them. As Jeff had originally conceived the hose nose character, it would be able to shoot projectiles out of said nose, which is why Lee had thought a game featuring his characters would be called Snots and Boogers. 
Davis apparently felt that not giving Qbert any true defensive abilities would make it not only easier to program, but add a level of tension for the player. I should also add that, shock, with the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast episode, there are conflicting accounts on the creation of the game. Jeff Lee has gone on record stating that he came up with the Cube Pyramid design to resemble something akin to MC Escher. In a 1994 interview that is hosted on Jeff Lee's site, he says, quote, Consequently, sometime in 1982, one day I was tooling around with background tiles on the blue box. Being a fan of the great Dutch artist, M.C. Escher, the master of optical illusions, I constructed a stack of triad-based cubes. Admiring my derivative handiwork, it struck me. There's a game in here somewhere. The pseudo-3D look was quite compelling. Nothing like it was out there, but not for long. By the time Qbert was released, I believe Zaxxon made its debut. I thought it would be an interesting premise to populate the cubic pyramid with critters, which would exist on the three intersecting planes and began writing up gameplay documents. I also created a little orange critter with a large nose, from which he would shoot missiles at his opponents. Two feet and no arms. I dubbed the game Snots and Boogers. End quote. By the way, the blue box that Lee mentions, as I read online from that Warren Davis interview, was the Intel development system that was being used at Gottlieb. Davis mentions it was about the size of five PC towers stacked atop each other and was, well, blue. Of course, I will add a link to that Lee interview too. Most of the information is the same as Davis, with a few minor differences. For example, Lee remembers it as Warren who came up with the idea that when Qbert is hopping around the pyramid, that the cubes would change color when he lands on them. Whereas Davis states it was Ron Waxman, Gottlieb's VP of Engineering, who apparently would at times just sit behind someone and just watch them work, not saying anything. Apparently, during a night of working on the concept of the game, Waxman offered up the idea of the cubes changing color when Qbert hopped on them. In that interview with Warren, he mentions that he felt with Waxman's suggestion, the idea for Qbert finally began to take shape. Throw in very memorable sound designs by David Teal, who we also talked about on that Crawl episode, and it appears that Davis, Lee, and Teal felt they had a winner on their hands. I've read that all the programming began in April of 1982, and by October, Gottlieb was ready to ship out cabinets. Although, I saw online that the games were being sold personally to arcade operators at the November 1982 AMOA Expo. And like I've already mentioned, it was very well received. Just not at my local showbiz pizza for some reason. I should add that a major stumbling block was coming up with a name for the game. Cubes and Snots and Boogers were ruled out. And the vice president of marketing felt that just using the nonsensical word balloon that appears above Qbert when he is struck by an enemy was good enough. Uh, by the way, that is something that Davis appears to be vehement about. It was never intended to symbolize that Qbert was cursing. I guess all of us that grew up reading comics, however, noticed the similarities and just assumed that was what it meant. By just using the gibberish in the word balloon as the title, a problem occurred, and it's one you might think. If you were telling someone how awesome the game was, what would you call it? Eventually, after the name Hubert was thrown out during a pitch meeting, someone thought back to one of the game's original names, Cubes, and came up with Cubert. It was art director Richard Tracy, though, that changed it from C-U-B-E-R-T to Q-Bert, and then changing that hyphen to an asterisk before release. I've read that a sequel entitled Faster, Harder, More Challenging Cubert was being developed in 1983. 
as Davis felt that the game wasn't very difficult. Hearing reports of some players being able to play for hours on a single quarter or token. Sadly, the game was cancelled, but in 1996, Davis released the ROM image free of charge to the world. I've watched it in action on YouTube, and while I really do think that Qbert is already a difficult game, this proposed sequel lives up to its title. The gameplay is much faster, and in addition, the floating discs on the sides of the pyramid move up the sides so you can quickly find yourself boxed in if you aren't careful. Also featured in the game was Qbertha, who acted just like Coily. There was a sequel to Qbert though released to the arcades in 83, and that was Qbert's Cubes. Which, while Jeff Lee had a hand in the game with graphics, it was programmed by Neil Bernstein. Warren Davis would go on to have a hand in such games as Joust 2 Survival of the Fittest, Narc, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and Revolution X. Qbert tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns with helping the orange and fuzzy title character hop up and down on the tops of a pyramid made up of 28 cubes. Changing the color of the cubes to match the target color, which is shown in the upper left of the screen. Once all the cube colors match the one shown in that corner, the round will end and the player will move on to the next round. A single four-way joystick is provided to guide Qbert up and down the pyramid, although that is a joystick that is mounted diagonally, allowing players to move diagonally to the left and right, as well as up and down the pyramid. I will include a link in the podcast article for the Retroist podcast where he tackles Qbert. The Retroist, who apparently is no slouch when it comes to the game, has a moving story about getting to play a Qbert cabinet where the joystick hadn't been orientated properly. While Qbert might not have any personal offense and defenses, there are two flying discs starting off in the first level on the left and right hand side of the pyramid. In later levels, the discs can be found solely on the right hand side, or even feature up to seven multiple discs. If Qbert is about to get whacked in the head by a red or purple ball, he can jump on one of those discs for a free and safe ride back up to the very top of the pyramid. In addition, if the bouncing and villainous Coily is close behind Qbert, when the player jumps on one of those flying discs, during the trip to the top of the pyramid, Coily, in an attempt to tackle Qbert, will leap off the edge of the pyramid to his doom. <laughs> As an added bonus, if Coily is lured to his doom, it will clear the pyramid of all enemies, offering a brief respite, although, as you can imagine, in later rounds and levels, that is a very short amount of time indeed. The red balls drop to either the left or right cube just below the top cube on the pyramid, making their way down to the bottom until they fall off and reappear back near the top of the cube pyramid again. Beginning in round 3 of level 1, a green ball can drop. Qbert can make contact with anything green safely. In addition, when you land on this green ball for a couple of seconds, time freezes, and you safely can move about the pyramid and even through enemies while the background flashes multiple colors. A jump in the wrong direction at the edges of the pyramid cube is just as dangerous for Qbert as it is for Coily. Something that is easier to do than you might think, especially in later rounds when multiple enemies are coming at you from what feels like all directions, and you are reacting just out of sheer panic. If Qbert hops off the edge of the pyramid, the player watches helplessly as he plummets with an anguished cry. <laughs> 
If the player is struck by a red or purple ball, they will lose an extra life. That purple ball is how Coily enters the stage, bouncing down the pyramid until it reaches one of the last of the 28 cubes, and then uncoils and starts hopping after Qbert. Obviously, Qbert will also lose a life if Coily leaps on him. The same holds true for the equally villainous and purple-hued characters Wrong Way and Ugg. Speaking of Ugg and Wrong Way, beginning on round 3 of level 1, these two monsters first show up. The pig-like Ugg begins on the bottom of the right-hand side of the screen and begins moving to the left, where Wrong Way shows up on the left-hand side of the bottom of the screen and begins heading to the right. The problem is, these two monsters, besides being deadly to the touch, have a bizarre movement pattern. Ugg will hop across using only the right-hand side of the cubes of the pyramid, with Wrong Way naturally using only the left. It is far too easy to get caught between the two of them as they move from one side of the pyramid to the other. When the duo reach the edges of the pyramid, they will just leap off safely into space, only to appear once again and start the process all over. Although, remember, they will disappear if you can lure Coily off the edge with a flying disc. Another set of enemies that will show up on round one of level two are the green-hued Slick and Sam. These little beasties, while safe to touch, have the very annoying habit of, when hopping on cubes, reverting them to their starting color. So, it's rather important to try and take them out as soon as they show up, especially if you are almost finished with a pyramid. I suppose I should have already mentioned this, but there are nine levels in Cubert, made up of four rounds each. Although, after reaching level 9, the game will just keep using the same rules on changing the colors of the cube. Starting with level 2, I personally feel the game speeds up quite a bit. For what it might be worth, I can clearly recall a player making it to level 4, round 3 one evening at the Arcadia Retrocade. This young teen set her sights on mastering Qbert, and in my eyes, she totally did that. She also earned the title of what the game refers to as being a supreme noser, <laughs> taking the top spot on the high score table. I want to thank the strategy wiki on this part here. For level 1, all the player must do is hop on a cube and the color will be changed to the target color as presented in the upper left hand corner. Beginning with level 2, a hop on a cube will alter it to the second color, requiring a third hop on the cube for the target color. Like with level 1, you don't have to worry about accidentally changing it back when hopping on the cube again. With level 3, however, when a player jumps on the cube, it is the target color, and if you happen to jump on it again, it will revert to the starting color. On level 4, the first hops on a cube will present the second available color, and a second leap on the cube gives the player the target color. If you land on it a third time, the cube reverts back to the starting color. And then, in level 5, and for the rest of the game, it requires two jumps on a cube to reach the target color. And yet again, if a third takes place, it will revert back to the original color. As I mentioned just moments ago, Shay Mathis, the owner and manager of the Arcadia Retrocade, was able to get his hands on a Qbert cabinet a little after the doors to the arcade were open to the public. For the longest time, it has been housed outside the party room, with Atari's Roadrunner to one side, as well as Rampage and Fixit Felix Jr. In fact, Qbert's appearance in Disney's Wreck-It Ralph appears to have really catapulted the character into the hearts of an entirely new generation. 
Actually, have you heard the fan theory as to why the character of Wrong Way doesn't appear in that Disney film? It is speculated that the little monster was unable to exit the game at Litwax before it was unplugged, meaning he was wiped out of existence. That is kind of a bleak thing to think about, right? One of the things I looked forward to the most when opening the arcade every afternoon was the fact that for some reason, when all the power was turned on to the machines, we would always have to unplug Qbert for a couple of seconds. Upon plugging it back up though, it made me smile to hear Qbert say, Hello, I'm Grey And now, these messages. The Fleeners are about to meet Cubert. What they don't know is that this cute little character may change their lives. It's up to you to hop the irresistible Cubert and avoid nasty characters like Ugg and Coily. And like the arcade game, the more trouble he gets into, the more involved you'll get trying to save him. You'll hop with him, you'll float with him, you'll begin to anticipate his every move. You'll grow so attached to Cubert, you'll become one of the family. Cubert from Parker Brothers. Also available in tabletop model. Cupid's the game that you can play. If you win the most pegs, you got it made. Pretend to be Cupid, it suits your mood. Or pretend to be slick, the tricky dude. Jump in that pyramid up and down. Hit the nasty ends around. The card game sold separately, that's a fact. Those are board games, that's a wrap. Cupid, new from Parker Brothers. I mentioned the merchandise and ports of Qbert to the popular home consoles and computers of the day towards the beginning of the podcast. But here to talk about them in depth is none other than Earl Green. Qbert was everywhere. Perhaps even more than Pac-Man, Qbert was ported to every console and computer under the sun back in the day, thanks to Parker Brothers who snagged the home computer and home cartridge license for Qbert and proceeded to port it to every console and every computer system it could find. There were versions released by Parkers for the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the Atari 8-bit home computers, the ColecoVision, the Commodore 64, the VIC-20, the Intellivision, also the TI-99-4A home computer, Sinclair ZX Spectrum, but here's, here's one that's really wild. Qbert was ported to the Odyssey 2 in Europe. It was ported to the Philips Video Pack, which was the European equivalent of the Odyssey 2. However, many multi-carts include the Parker Brothers arcade games released for the Odyssey 2 in Europe, the others being Super Cobra, Frogger, and Popeye. But the version of Qbert for the Odyssey 2 is actually probably the best of the Parker ports for that system because, so help me, the Odyssey 2 actually can play a really good game of Qbert. Later on, versions were available for the NES, the Game Boy, the original monochrome Game Boy, as well as the Game Boy Color. Now that gets us up to about 1999, which saw a really a revival of retro arcade titles in general. There were many versions of classic titles such as Missile Command, Battlezone, Sinistar, Pac-Man, all of this stuff. You just kind of woke up around 1999. And in particular, there was an excellent Game Boy Color port that included a fantastic port of the arcade game, as well as what was called an adventure mode, which was sort of a sort of a mission-based mode. But even in that mode, the game still relied on you moving up and down cubes in that 3D perspective that was already familiar to you from the arcade game. There was a PlayStation 
version of Qbert released at this same time, which was also excellent and also featured a perfect port of the original arcade game, as well as the ability to hold your controller at an angle so that the diagonal movement of the game would be more instinctive with the D-pad on the PlayStation controller. Now that's a control scheme that harkens back to the Atari 2600 version of the game, which required you to hold your joystick not as a square but as a diamond with the action button pointing north, for lack of a better description, up. And that way the four-way directional control went diagonal. I always liked the 2600 version. I It takes a lot of flack for not being perfect, but it is about what I always expected from a 2600 version, and I have always had a great big orange soft spot for the Atari 2600 version of Qbert. Qbert was all over the place in other forms as well. Of course, there was the cartoon, which was part of Saturday Supercade. Now, did you know that all but two episodes of that cartoon are now on DVD, thanks to Sony Pictures, who bought the rights to Qbert at a later date? They absorbed Columbia Pictures, and Columbia Pictures had taken over the IP, the Qbert IP, from Gottlieb and Milestar. Qbert was also available in storybook form, and this was a curious thing because it made use of the string of characters, you know, the, the characters that in comics cover up where you were assuming that a character is swearing. And however, you know, that string of characters is used throughout the book. And with my oldest son, when he was very young, I got a second-hand copy of the Qbert storybook, and we had great fun trying to figure out what sounds that string of characters should be. And the sounds that that string of characters made varied from, you know, story time to story time on different nights of the week. Qbert, not action figures, but figurines were also available. It's kind of curious that these were released in 1983 by Kenner, most famous for the license for the Star Wars action figures. Of course, by 83, you have to figure that Return of the Jedi was in the theaters, and Lucas was saying that, you know, this was the end of the road for Star Wars. Kenner was probably hedging its bets and looking for other things to base toys on. Kenner also made a wind-up hopping Qbert, many of which really don't hop all that well all these years later. Don't ask me how I know that. Qbert has also appeared as a Funko Pop in their retro arcade line. And going back to 83, there was also a Qbert plushie available whose nose you could squeak. And it was, you know, it's basically like a little clown nose squeaker in there. Kind of, kind of an odd thing. <laughs> you know, really, what's the first thing you think of when you walk up to Qbert? Oh, I'm going to grab his nose. Squeak. Perfect. Qbert is still available today. In fact, there is a, a mobile version. I have the Android version of it on my phone, and I will pull it up occasionally. Although it uses a swiping control mechanism rather than anything resembling the original control scheme, and as such dispenses with the cubes, and you're just trying to fill in rows of these diagonal squares. Qbert is an infinitely adaptable game, and as things like the Saturday's Supercade cartoon or Qbert's appearances in movies like Pixels and Wreck-It Ralph showed, it's an infinitely adaptable IP, an infinitely adaptable character. So hats off to the original designer of Qbert, Warren Davis, as well as the original artist who created the character of Qbert, Jeff Lee, who I once interviewed for Classic Gamer magazine. And Jeff always struck me as being very proud of what he had created, and justifiably so. I know it certainly brought younger me a lot of happiness. Squeak. 
I'm afraid that Gary Burton was unable to join us on this last episode of Season 2, but for very good reason. Thanks to Shay Mathis, Gary, Adam, William, and other friends of the Arcadia Retrocade just killing themselves, working morning, day, and night for the last two weeks. Well, I'm extremely happy to say the arcade opened back up just two days ago. Naturally, there are elements of the arcade, like the party room and even the snack bar, that are not available at this time. But that second wing of the arcade, after nearly seven years, is open and ready for players to enjoy. To say nothing of the fact of players getting to finally see the hard work of local artist Terry Thielen, who painted a beautiful mural on the wall for Shea, featuring hundreds of video game and pop culture related characters and icons. I'm betting that we'll get some good videos and photographs from the arcade to post on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page pretty soon. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you enjoyed this second season of the podcast. I realize I'm no expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games, and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes. I'm going to be taking a two-week hiatus from podcasting in an attempt to finally get the podcast library back up. You can check out daily posts on all manner of pop culture related subjects by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is now available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify and Stitcher. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook. Or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. I really want to thank Earl Green for all his hard work on this second season. Earl is a frequent contributor to the Pop Culture Retrorama site, as well as being a very good friend to the arcade, having donated most of his collection of home console games and more. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest running websites for literally all things pop culture related. In addition, I have to give a huge thank you to Gary Burton, who frequently shares photographs from the work he's doing at the arcade, letting me post them on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. In addition, from time to time, he contributes articles to the Pop Culture Retrorama site, too. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting all manner of things, from video games to Viewmaster Reels on my Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore. As always, I want to thank the Retroist. For over a decade, the Retroist provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. After taking his website down for just a very brief amount of time, the Retroist is back, providing new podcasts and articles. So make sure you check him out on a daily basis. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist's support. We won't be listening to a clip of the subject for next week's show, but I do hope if you're a fan of horror movies and TV series that you will join us on the Saturday Frights podcast. Season 3 of that show will be uploaded in, in a little over two weeks. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye.
and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Gottlieb, Atari, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games, TV programs, and ads are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. History is made at night. Character is what you are in the dark. End of line.